Wahiguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Wahiguru Ji Ki Fateh. I am Jaskaran Singh Sandhu, a national board member and the director of administration for the World Sikh Organization of Canada. Uh, today, it's it's a great honor of ours and with uh, and it's a great pleasure of ours at the World Sikh Organization to be hosting Rana Ayub, uh, an esteemed and uh, globally recognized journalist, investigative journalist who's won countless awards, uh, has written and her work has appeared in major publications internationally and, and, and India. Uh, and currently writes with the Washington Post. Uh, Rana, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't do this in person as we originally planned, but uh, this is this is obviously the next best thing. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much uh, for hosting me and thank you to the World Seek Organization. Uh, I was looking forward uh, for our tour in Canada and, and meeting everybody in person because my trip in 2016 was, uh, 2017 actually was such a delight in, you know, meeting members of the Sikh community, going to Gurdwaras across across the country. Uh, but I'm glad we can do this given the circumstances. Uh, also a warning, I'm, I'm a bit drained out because I have the flu, um, not, the, not COVID yet, I'm, I'm testing for it in a few days. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to answer as many questions as I can in this, in this, in this state of mind of mine. But um, it's really, really, I'm really uh, glad to be joining this. And um, I hope to an enlightening conversation with all of you. So, uh, Rana, I think before we kind of hop into the nitty gritty of the topic at hand on criminalizing dissent in India, um, which is obviously a very important conversation in light of uh, today, uh, symbolically, which is yeah. uh, Independence Day of India. And we, yesterday was Independence Day of Pakistan. Um, right. But also in light of a lot of the news that's been coming out of India and global, like global trends on criminalizing dissent as well. Uh, but before that's we hop right. into uh, the nitty gritty of that, uh, I, I'm actually interested because we've been watching uh, your social media feed for a while and you've been doing a lot of humanitarian work. Uh, and, I, and I thought maybe that's a, it's a good opportunity to start there and, and just yeah. uh, get your insights on the kind of work that's happening right now and, and the state of affairs on the ground. I think if there is one thing, I mean, people who know me will vouch for the fact that if you keep me grounded at home, especially, I mean, I've never seen a lockdown before, so I have none of us. I would have gone insane uh, given the fact that I, I was unable to move. This lockdown really has has kept me, kept my sanity, uh, you know, especially around with the hatred around and with, with the, the wild stuff uh, and the majority in slide of the country, uh, it feels like we are living in two different countries. One where there is political opportunism, where, uh, where, where we are laying the foundation stone of, of a temple in the midst of a raging pandemic. India is now number three. And another India where, you know, we have been traveling all across the country, especially in Assam and Bihar, where there are people who have not eaten a meal for close to three days. And when we went there, they were just, they were, I mean, these are middle class people who have never begged in their life. Uh, I have never seen something like this before. So what happened is sometime around the end of March, when, when this lockdown just, uh, you know, was imposed in India, the migrants were marching home. And uh, I was passing, I'd, I'd gone to pick up some Alfonso mangoes for my family. And there was this, near a railway station, there were these bunch of migrants who were sitting. And among, among them was a pregnant woman. And I, uh, you know, I asked her, what was the last meal she ate? She said it was two days ago, it was a banana. And that really made me stare at my own privilege. I mean, here I am hunting for Alfonso mangoes in the midst of a lockdown. 
and here there are women, especially a pregnant woman, and there are millions like them. Who so, which is why I started this keto page, uh, where I asked for donations uh, to help uh, as many people as we could. And I have, I mean, as much as I, um, you know, I loathe what's happening in the country. I lament uh, the majority in slide of the country. I was amazed. I was amazed at the at the donations and the cooperation by well-meaning people in India. That kind of reinstilled my faith in the democracy. That you know, within a span of a week, we managed to collect about a crore, and then you know, uh, and. As of today, we have managed to, uh, you know, provide rations to about 50,000 families, send 6,000 migrant workers back home every day. Every day, uh, there is some place or the other where we go to. I personally uh, am traveling in each of uh, the affected areas. So it's been, I think, you know, we always say that journalists cannot be activists. I don't think I'm doing activism right now. But as a journalist, I cannot look at something and look the other way. If I'm reporting something, I just cannot look the other way and think, but I've done my job of reporting that's up to people. What this lockdown really taught me is to kind of, you know, if you have a public voice and if you can help people and you have, if you have a, a command in social media followers, why not use that platform to, to help people? And this lockdown was a revelation. And um, we have been doing this relief work for now four months now, and we are running out of funds. So uh, my, uh, so the Keto account is, is pinned on my Twitter page and my Instagram page. Do whatever you can, because this is the time humanity really needs us. Well, that's amazing. And then I think, again, there's, there's, um, there's a lot one can do and boots on the ground. There's no, you can't replicate the impact that that has. Uh, and humanitarian right. work is, is critical and crucial, and uh, especially uh, for folks uh, uh, in India and everywhere else in the world that are, that are struggling through the COVID and, and other natural disasters that are coming up in more frequency. So. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that. We'll, we'll also share a link to the donations uh, in the chat. I know some people have asked. Uh, so we'll, we'll share a link to that as well as this, as this continues on. Russell, we, we're here today to talk about criminalizing dissent uh, in India. And if there's, if there's anyone who's been fighting uh, the good fight and uh, pushing uh, the, the, the state of India and uh, the bringing awareness to uh, collapsing democratic institutions and uh, just the, the growing threat uh, to, uh, well, really the growing threat to any activist, human rights activist, journalist, uh, to raise their voice and, and talk about issues that are presenting itself in India today. Um, it's been you. You've become sort of a, uh, the face of, of dissent in India right now. Uh, and your piece in the New Yorker, I think, was uh, shed a lot of light on your profile to a global audience. Uh, so I, I really wanted to start there, just, just talking about kind of the New Yorker piece uh, and what, how that came about and, and what was that moment for you? Because you've been working for years trying to get your story out. You know, it was kind of surprising that, you know, I mean, we were, I mean, I've been working as a journalist since 2005, 2006, and everybody has been familiar with my work, especially in India. And I've been writing for the Washington Post, for the New York Times and other international publications. But with, the, with New Yorker putting the, uh, focus firmly on India and on me. I think the kind of attention it got me internationally, and it surprised me that you know people familiar with the state of affairs in India were not familiar with the kind of investigation that we were doing, the kind of investigation I was doing at the Hellcat that I was responsible for sending Amit Shah, who's now the Home Minister of Country, behind bars in 2010. 
so that really shed the attention, um, you know, uh, turned the attention of the world towards India as it rightly should have been. Uh, you know, uh, so basically what happened is Dexter Filkins, who's, who's one of the veteran, he's one of the, the finest journalists across the world. Uh, he was trying to reach out to me. He reached out to me on Facebook, Instagram, every possible platform that he could. And I, he also sent me two mails, which I completely ignored because I did not realize what it was. And I was, I'm kind of exhausted with answering emails. And, you know, there are so many people who write to me. So it was just, I just, I think I just overlooked it. Then finally, a writer friend from, of mine in London said, this is something that you must certainly do um, because it's important that the story of India needs to, uh, you know, be told. And then Dexter Wilkins came to India and then uh, he, he, he asked, he spoke to my family. He spent days uh, around, around my apartment. He, he, took, he booked a hotel close to where I stay. He spent a lot of time with my family, my parents, with me traveling to places where I, I went to. And, spe- and this was the time the, log, uh, the special act was revoked in Kashmir. And um, so I sneaked Dexter in Kashmir because this was a time when no foreign journalists, even now, foreign journalists are not allowed access in Kashmir. So I sneaked Dexter in, you know, he, like he was like the Gora that, that was, that kind of looked very Kashmiri. And I made him, you know, wear a scarf and a skull cap and, and glasses. And I asked him to keep coughing throughout this exit from the airport. So I sneaked him in and he witnessed my reporting on Kashmir and he witnessed the human rights abuses firsthand while I reported that. And I think that story was so important and that it, it had to be seen from the lens of somebody from a distance, not from somebody who was right there in the midst of rapidly unfolding, even somebody who belonged here, but from somebody who could watch things from a distance and watch India's decline into this majoritarian abyss. So, um, so Dexter spoke about, you know, about my journey, for the fact that I was a cripple, that I was born with a polio, and uh, I couldn't walk. Um, I didn't have friends. To the fact that when I was nine years old, um, the, the anti-Muslim carnage took place uh, in, all over India, right after the Babri demolition. And how I became and my family became a Muslim overnight in a cosmopolitan society of you know, only Hindu families. You were the only Muslim family. And my father was considered the Guruji in the area because he was a government school teacher. And and sometime around 7th or 8th December 1992, people who we knew as our friends, um, they barged into our house to pick me and my sister uh, for gang rape. And a Sikh family, Mr. Bagga, who was our next door neighbor, he risked his life, put us on a scooter. And I remember we were taken to a, to a Sikh housing society in, in Chakala. And uh, uh, so a Sikh family kept us in their house for about three months. And... I remember when the dust settled, I asked him, I said, Bagga, my father asked Mr. Bagga, you know, why did you do this? He literally put his, la- you know, his life uh, on fire, I mean, life uh, out there for us. And he said, sir, apne, I mean, it was a huge, no Hindi word for injustice. Sir, apne zulm you are witnessing it now. So it felt familiar. And uh, so... And so Dexter wrote about it. He wrote about my, um, he wrote about me going to Gujarat at the age of 19 um, uh, to do relief work with a Hindu identity and seeing, uh, and seeing the carnage firsthand and then uh, becoming a journalist by, uh, you know, to, 
to basically uh, you know as a, as as a, I, I i used to think of myself as a weak human somebody who was born with a polio somebody who had seen so much discrimination um there were there were too many scars and journalism helped me heal uh, those scars and i think it became a moral responsibility for me to speak out for those who could not speak for themselves to speak out for the oppressed and uh, and the fact that uh, i could you know i got evidence against amit shah in 2010 and he he went behind bars for my investigation because of my investigation the first serving minister of state for home to go behind bars i was 26 then and the way my life changed after that investigation and the death threats that i've been getting that i had to change 40 to 60 sim cards in one year just to protect myself so that's the story i think the western world needed to hear because through my journey as a through my journey as a journalist and a human uh they managed to track the journey of india into a majoritarian state and that's what made the new yorker story so you know so special and you know something that really you know shook up the international community and kind of you know they were they were i think they knew what was happening in india but they did not understand realize the intensity of the problem that the world's largest democracy was going down under so i think that was the moment i think the new yorker piece was uh, uh, was a big shot in the arm for so many like us and i'm not the only one i mean of course i've unfortunately become the face of the dissent like many others like my friend prashant bhushan uh there are many in india who are fighting a, an unpopular battle a very very unpopular battle and there are not many allies so that's yeah. where we are I I think that brings a really good point and uh, I think a good yeah. leeway into uh, the deeper conversation as minorities and you share that that story of uh Bug Uncle uh who saved your family and and use um when when talking about it says well we went through this as well um yeah yeah what does that say about the place of minorities in an increasing majoritarian state uh under the BJP Uh, and i guess the second question there because the, the sixth story uh, was a lot of the injustices that we faced was at the hands of the congress party which would otherwise yeah. be seen as a liberal secular party absolutely uh, but, so my, so i guess there's two parts to this question like what does it say about the minority experience in a majoritarian state and why is mm-hmm. it different for minorities to be able to speak without you know being seen as a threat uh and what does that say about the bjp in congress and like the political state in india right now as it as it uh see looks at dissent in in the state i think uh i think the bjp and the congress are kind of mirror images of each other when it comes to treating the minorities i mean we we outrage about narendra modi being the chief minister of gujarat narendra modi being made prime minister despite the 2002 carnage but many liberals and intellectuals uh, fail to outrage if you sh- fail to show a similar outrage when a kamal nath is made a chief minister uh, by the congress kind of uh, you know rubbing salt on the wounds of so many of an entire community um, you know that saw brutal hate that was unleashed on them muslims and sikhs have a lot in common like other minorities in the country because we have seen hate enabled by those in power we have been witness to pogroms and genocide in the country where we have not been given the right to to speak about our oppression you like it's like for instance the muslim problem uh like i always say the oppressed in, in the the oppressors in india like always want to tell the oppressed the language of oppression 
you know it's like we will tell you what oppression feels like in delhi when the carnage happened this year uh everybody a lot of my friends kept on calling it you know riot riot and hindu muslim riot and hindu muslim clash and i i it just really angered me and i went on the farid zakaria show and i'm a lot of my journalists friends were outraged when i called it a anti muslim carnage that language the terminology that liberals and journalists have used in india and the same the same goes with the sikh community what happened in 1984 the refusal to call it a genocide for me is a biggest problem at my book launch in 2016 at the at the book launch of gujarat files i remember indra jaising said something very significant that if 90 if 1984 was given justice 1993 would not have happened if 1993 was given justice 2002 would not have happened and, and so on and so forth it's a cycle of injustice that sikhs and muslims have witnessed in this country have they have witnessed what it feels to be a minority in a majoritarian regime um as far as mr bagga is concerned i think you know when these writers came to our house and they and they put the posters of chalo ayodhya che december mr bagga could see that happening because this is exactly how it panned out in in in, in delhi you know he could see the build up it was all too familiar you know uh, when when members of the gandhi family gave not so subtle speeches to provoke the audiences um and the same the same uh, the same uh the same modus operandi was repeated in gujarat it was repeated in maharashtra where leaders in power enabled the majority to feel the victim in their own country and fuel the hate against minorities so sikhs and muslims understand each other's pain as much as there is an effort by the bjp regime to kind of create a schism between the two communities drawing uh, you know historical injustices to kind of uh, you know um to create divisions but at this point in time in india sikhs muslims dalits christians understand the pain of being a minority it's a it's a nightmare to be a minority in india whether it was rajiv gandhi whether it is kamal nath whether it is jagdish taipler whether it is narendra modi whether it is amit shah they're all complicit of the same criminality and this is where intellectuals and human rights activists and journalists come in place they must understand that history is kind and objective and scathing in its observation and history will judge all those who are writing this history so they must understand that they will be held to account tomorrow if they if they, if they misrepresent facts what is happening in modi's india is that facts are being distorted and misrepresented uh, to kind of give a distorted vision of a democratic india so if we look at the the state that you just uh, just described uh and we look at minorities within india today what's the recourse uh if we look at uh, the ability of minorities to express uh, issues within government to express yeah. the injustices or oppressions they're facing at the hands of the state uh they are either labeled as isi agents uh yeah. they're labeled as paid by the chinese regime they're labeled yeah. as national they're uh they're labeled all these things and uh, even worse uh, they get picked yeah. up by uh, we've been seeing the increasingly use of the uapa uh, in punjab and elsewhere to crack down on human rights advocates you know what's the recourse uh for minorities who are trying to express uh issues with with the state of the state of india as it exists today for the longest time i think we have believed that the recourse lies in the legal system within the legal system and our judiciary and our institutions 
But in the last six years, we have seen the institutions kind of crumble under pressure. And this is not new. This has happened under fascist regimes uh, in India. It's not. A, it's a repeat. It's a repeat of everything that has happened in the past. Uh, you know, we saw when the '93 carnage took place. There was a Sri Krishna Commission that was formed uh, to look into the Mumbai uh, to look into the Mumbai carnage. Uh, the committee gave its report and indicted some of the top BJP and Shiv Sena leaders. And it was the Congress regime that could not give them justice. It was the Congress in power. It was not the BJP in power. Um, so for, for the longest time, the Supreme Court of India used to be the CBI, um, the agencies that would dispense justice. Um, we, used to look at, we used to look up to them to dispense justice to us. The Supreme Court of India in 2000 and four called Narendra Modi, a modern day Nero who looked the other way as innocent women and children were being butchered. It is, un and then you see the Supreme Court of India develop amnesia, not just over the past, but about the way justice needs to be delivered. So for the longest time, minorities have, you know, kind of, you know, reposed their faith in the judiciary. At this point of time, the only recourse is well-meaning people. And I say that knowing, uh, knowing and, and being fully aware of, of the recourses available to us, I think we only have ourselves to stand by uh, and, and, and our solidarity because you saw what happened with Prashant Dushan. He, he, put, he put out a couple of tweets exposing um, a certain member uh, of the Supreme Court. And now for the first time in Indian history, you know, there is a case against him and he could be sentenced um, on the 20th, August, 20th of August by Justice Arun Mishra uh, for just two tweets, which point out to the criminality by those who are supposed to dispense justice. I'll give a small example because Justice Arun Mishra is supposed to, you know, deliver um, the sentence, the quantum, the sentencing and the, you know, whatever happens on 20th August. Justice Arun Mishra, when Prashant Bhushan asked to reinvestigate the case of uh, the murder of Harin Pandya, who was, the, who, was the, who was the homeless son Narendra Modi, who had differences with him, and he was murdered. And till date, there is no clarity on it. So Mr. Prashant Bhushan filed a petition in the Supreme Court, citing my book, Gujarat Files as Evidence. Justice Arun Mishra gives a judgment saying, my book is full of loopholes, it cannot be considered evidence, etc., 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 completely uh, ripped my book apart in pieces. Towards the end of the judgment, the same justice says that he has not read the book. And that's, you're talking about the judiciary for heaven's sake. And what do you expect from that court to give justice? I mean, these are the people you're talking about here, whether it's Prashant Bhushan or me or other activists and journalists. These are well these are public figures. They have, they have, uh, they have a support base. Think of the person who does not have the kind of support base, who does not have our privilege, who does not have a popularity. If that person turns up to the Supreme Court of India or the High Courts of India for justice, what happens? You see what happens to Pragya Thakur. I remember in 2008, the, the day Hemant Karkare was martyred in the 2611 Mumbai attacks, I met him. I was the last person he spoke to. And he spoke about the rise of Hindu fundamentalism and, and, and the involvement of Pragya Thakur in the Maligaon blasts. And, in, in the, uh, and, their, and their involvement in many terror cases in India. And when 2611 happened, Indians labeled Hemant Karkari as a martyr. And today, Pragya Thakur sits in the Indian parliament, not just that, on a defense panel. Where's the Supreme Court of India? Where are, where are our courts? So who do, you, who do you seek justice from? 
when everything around is compromised who do you seek justice from so we need these we kind of look up to people who are now fighting the good fight who are now fighting the unpopular fight so these are the people we look up to because we do not have any recourse if this is how the supreme court of india acts who do we turn to so we have ourselves to kind of stand by each other so when we talk about de- de- democracies and strong democracies in in the indian state and folks that speak about it love to say that it's the world's largest democracy uh, which maybe on paper is true uh, but when we talk about institutions that uphold democracy courts are an integral part of it uh, and i think you highlighted a lot of the issues uh, that exist within the court system the justice system which even if it does find justice it takes years and even then because of the heroic efforts of folks like hs fulka um yeah in the case of 1984 Uh, and Absolutely. that's heroic after so after 30 years. Yeah. But the another key institution key pillar one that you spent a lot of time talking about and and has been slowly been more and more exposed uh, is media and yeah. the role that journalists play in shedding light when no one else can. Uh free yeah. media is like an integral part of any democracy. Uh but we're seeing uh, criminalization of dissent or even uh, fact finding or writing from journalists Uh, or even self policing of journalists in india uh, so there's a recent rsf uh, so uh, Jour- journalism without borders uh, report yeah. uh, world freedom index of uh, journalism and india's ranked really close to the bottom probably one of the lowest yeah. democracies yeah what does that say about media and, and its complicity in all this or uh, even when uh, they are trying that they're they're cracked down on by the state I have never been more disappointed in my 15 years of journalism I don't see a media that is so a uh, craven that is so driven by its access uh, of politicians uh, that it chooses to look the other way when crimes are being committed I remember Elkhedwani said during the emergency when asked to bend they crawled in India at this point of time they have not even been asked to bend and they are prostrating they are prostrating before the powers that be well meaning journalists i can give you an example of the day uh, the babri the ayodhya stone uh, the foundation uh, mr modi was laying the foundation stone at ayodhya journalist and well meaning journalists who covered the demolition of the babri masjid secular journalists and intellectuals uh, stood outside that space eating eating pani puri and golgappa and talking about the new ayodhya and the development in ayodhya and you look at them and there was a nausea that you felt you know about being a, a part of this fraternity that loves to develop amnesia this is a fraternity of fraternity that will look the other way when a kamal nath is being made the chief minister despite his complicity in the 84 genocide this is this is the media that will completely develop amnesia over amit shah's past over the fact that he went behind bars for the extrajudicial murder of muslims it is a media that believes in drawing false equivalence and does not believe in calling this a spade a spade i have never seen i mean look at what's happening in the media in the last 3 weeks we are seeing the worst kind of starvation we are seeing farmer suicides but every day you have a sushant singh rajput suicide story and every day there is a trial by media everybody i every news anchor is a jurist every news anchor is an ib official every news anchor is a detective while the real stories go uncovered i have never been more disgusted you know whether the media now especially under modi likes these labels you know labeling sikhs as terrorists not using the word alleged but just labeling them as terrorists there have been many sikh youth who have disappeared in punjab the last over the last couple of years they have been booked under terror charges under uap specifically 
there are muslim youth who have been picked up and detained especially in kashmir uh, and when when the special uh, when special status to kashmir was revoked last year in this time uh, and hundreds of children were disappeared which is very common in kashmir media in kashmir was standing outside the dal lake with an apple in their hand talking about normalcy and talking about the famed red apple in kashmir so that speaks volumes i think the media has disgraced itself and you don't feel like associating yourself with the profession here anymore um, you know with with the indian uh, media anymore and i and one of the reasons why i stopped going on indian television debates is because they would get you and that they would get a right wing bigot and kind of make it a level playing field where they draw false equivalence between your truth and his truth this is false what about free this both sideism that's killing the media much like their western counterparts but there is some semblance of sanity in the western media indian media has lost that semblance of sanity there's no pretense anymore everything is what you see it's a brazen contempt for journal- for journalistic ethics so where's the hope there if there's no truth telling happening at the journalist level at the media level uh what what's the space for independent media there in india right now or what's the solution i see some really really young bright journalists in india who are not editors who are not who are not ceos these are bright young journalists in in breakout organizations in 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 organizations like scroll caravan wire young journalists who are out there you know telling stories that should be told uh these are not journalists who who get the biggest journalism award these are not journalists who love showing their uh, seeing their faces on television there is hope there is there is this gender, there is amidst all this doom and gloom there are also these voices that make so much sense uh that you know for instance two of caravan's journalists caravan is a leading publication in india their journalists were attacked uh, this week you know, because they went to report on on the on the anti muslim riots in delhi and they were attacked and one of the journalists was sexually harassed and they're still speaking the truth so uh, you know so besides this a uh, world of uh, journalists and 9 pm prime time anchor there are also these well meaning journalists who are speaking truth to power every day so i have placed my faith in them because unfortunately i'm not a pessimist um, you know of course these are the times that we live in these are really dark and depressing time but i've chosen optimism and and trying to see a, a you know a glimmer of hope in these young voices and these young activists in these in this human rights activists like prashant bhushan and and the and the hundreds of activists who are who are now in indian jails like sudha bhardwaj uh you know these are people who are fighting for us who are fighting they i mean this fight is as big as indian freedom struggle um uh, they are now fighting for india to to continue being a democracy and not slip into a fascist hindu state um so yes there are well meaning people who are fighting the good fight on our behalf when we talk about uh, independent media or activists or advocates speaking out uh and and expressing that dissent and putting a mirror uh, up up against uh, the state and some of the atrocities and human rights violations or the growing as you just mentioned the hidavatta movement or the hindu rashtra movement uh, as being led by the bjp normally that that platform would have been social media it would have been twitter it would be facebook uh which would otherwise be seen as like democratized spaces to speak uh without gatekeepers Uh, but just yesterday we saw news from the Wall Street Journal talking about Facebook 
uh, not actively cracking down yeah. on hate speech from leaders from the BJP uh, and uh, actually cracking down on dissent in cases as well. Where, where is the space for these conversations to happen right now in India without it being criminalized or silenced? I think the biggest story is about whether it's Facebook or social media and them enabling fascist regimes are not being told in India, but international media. You saw what happened in Kashmir last year. The, some of the bravest and most courageous reportage came from the BBC, came from Wall Street Journal, came from the Washington Post and New York Times. So I think, I think fortunately, unfortunately, the international media has been a big, big uh, support for us. Uh, I mean, can you imagine? I have been jobless since 2013 November since I quit the Helka. Uh, till last year when Washington Post employed me as its global opinions writer. And I remember many journalism organizations calling me uh, for, you know, with a job offer. And, and these are um, well-meaning friends and editors. And they would say, and I have been a part of many such interviews. And they said, you know, Rana, you're doing so well. You have such great sources. But, you know, now you should leave the BJP and let's talk about the Congress. And, uh, you know, you should, you should, in the, let's forget about Modi and Amit Shah. Let's focus more on the Congress stories. And I remember I looked at this editor in 2015, I think. And this editor was giving me an offer. He was giving me a big package. And he said, you know, stick to, stick to Congress right now. Stick to Muslim leaders. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not into pimping yet. You want yeah. me to pimp. You want me to pimp stories for you. So the fact that I have been, I was given some of the biggest investigative journalism awards. And I was jobless for five years. And that a Washington Post hired me speaks volumes of, of Indian journalism. When I released Gujarat Files in 2016, uh, it was a self-published book. All the publishers started publishing my book. And at the book launch, every editor, every political leader was at my book launch. They gave me a standing ovation. Next day, there was absolute silence. All the journalists and editor friends who meet me for coffee outside started ca calling me home. That's that's how scared and intimidated by, we are by the regime. We refuse to see, and, 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 and the excuse that they often give to me is like, you know, Rana, you don't have a family to look after, you don't have children, you know, we have families, we have loans to pay. And my answer to them is, listen, if you had loans to pay, why journalism? You could have, you could have joined any, any, uh, you know, any kind of organization, you could have joined the private sector. Why join journalism? So. Uh, so I think uh, at this point of time, my hope lies with the international community. There has there have been, and where Facebook is concerned, I have been, I've written so often and I've spoken so often. When Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook, I remember when Modi visited the Facebook headquarters, she changed her display picture to Narendra Modi. Facebook has been enabler or has been an enabler of fascist regimes across the world. Whether it's what's happening in Myanmar, what's happening to the Rohingyas, uh, what's happening in Philippines, what's happening in India, what's happening in America. Um, so, you know, I'll give you an example. On Facebook, you can amplify your story or amplify your post by kind of advertising it or by paying a small amount of money. Um, I remember each time I amplified a Modi story, the ad would be rejected by Facebook every time. And that's not my experience. Caravan put out a story that when it tried to amplify its its, uh, its investigations against Modi and Shah, Facebook would, Facebook would just remove, remove the post. And not just Facebook, look at what's happening in Twitter. The kind of hate that I'm subjected to, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter, 
I report each one of them. I mean, they mocked my image on a porn video in 2018. And this was on Facebook. This was on Twitter. This image was posted on the pages of BJP leaders and with a blue tick. And these pages were not removed. So it took a Wall Street Journal to write this story. It wasn't in the Indian Express. It wasn't in the Times of India. It took a Wall Street Journal to write this story. It's impossible if an Indian journalist tells me that they did not have, have access to that story. Everybody knows the story. Nobody has the courage to tell that story, which is why you have the Wall Street Journal, which is why you have the New York Times telling those brave stories. We all, we, you know, Indian journalists keep comparing themselves to American journalists saying, you know, we are doing, even journalists in America are doing, I'm sorry. Journalists in America are calling out Donald Trump day in, day out. Indian journalists treat Modi as a, some kind of, a, they place Modi on a pedestal. Somebody who needs to be worshipped every morning. They do not have the courage to even write one critical word of him. I don't expect justice. I don't expect them to speak for the, the, the marginalized in India. And which is why we see what's happening with Facebook and social media and Twitter. The kind of hate that is extended towards us. I mean, I put a tweet. I mean, if I put a full stop, there will be like a thousand responses, uh, you know, threatening me with rape and murder. And the fact that Twitter just is a mute spectator. When my image was mobbed on a porn video two years ago, and I went to an NDTV, NDTV did this program about how Facebook and Twitter are enabling hate. The BJP spokesperson came on television and said, if you go out in the rain, you have to expect to be, you expect to be drenched. I mean, he's legitimizing that hate on national television and nobody talks about it. And that's scary, right? Like, so we, we talked about like the crumbling, uh, the lack of trust on the court system. You have the media, the pillar, uh, the critical pillar in upholding any kind of democratic society or state. Uh, or to hold the regime's feet to fire, uh, aiding and abetting the state rather than uh, shining a light on it. What does that say then about dissent in India today, where uh, you are seeing it criminalized, uh, you're seeing it silenced? Does it, does it really present uh, a state that's kind of moving away from democratic principles towards more authoritarian ones, where any, uh, any truth spoken or any criticism is seen as a threat to the nation? Uh, rather than seen as something that, that needs to be discussed and, and really fleshed out as a, as a community? I think we have already passed the stage of being a country which allows dissent as a form of democracy. I think dissent has now become a criminal act. I think it won't be, I won't be, I mean, what happened with Kishan Bhushan? What was a dissenting act? He was punished, the, his, his tweets, he was criminalized for speaking the truth. Now that's not just about Prashant Bhushan. It is a, they have set an example. What they did to Prashant Bhushan was to set an example that if we can do this to him, we can do this to you. You know, you are not safe. You, I mean, you can live in America, you can live in Canada, you can still be penalized for putting out a tweet. So, you know, when I go to different countries and I give lectures and people say, what can we do? But we don't want to speak about, you know, what's happening in India. We have moved to this country. My, my, you know, all I need to say to each one of you who's listening to, in, uh, to, to this from Canada or any other part of the world, today they've come for us, tomorrow they'll come for you. It's, it's not, you know, it's, if you don't stand up and speak up for those who are suffering in India, for, for those for the marginalized, tomorrow they'll come for you, irrespective. We have seen that happening. 
we have not had each other's back which is why dissent is being criminalized criminalized in india each time i speak on any forum or any platform right right now i'm speaking to you i have to worry about the consequence god knows what will be recorded by what minister and the government what could be held against me and that's true for everybody i still consider myself a privileged person because i have the privilege of not being arrested but as we speak hundreds and thousands in, in india are being repressed uh, you, you saw the bima koregaon case wherein wherein hundreds of activists in india are being jailed for for allegedly conspiring to kill the prime minister and the evidence is just laughable you know you have you have activists actually carrying letters in their pockets when they are arrested that hey we were going to assassinate the prime minister and this is when this is not something that the bjp uh, it's not something that you know we want to only blame the bjp for we have to understand who brought in the uapa uh the congress machine it was the congress that brought in and sanctioned the most draconian terror acts uh what you see of i mean i see some congress leaders writing great op-eds about uh using uapa to criminalize dissent i'm sorry but what were you doing when you were in power i remember doing this cover story on dalit boys uh uh in maharashtra in 2012 who were arrested for reading ambedkar and karl marx and that literature was called seditious literature so what we see is 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 history repeating itself which is why congress and bjp are mirror images of each other nobody likes to say um of course narendra modi is not above everything that we have seen in the past um what was happening during the congress was happening in a more covert manner now it is being brazened out now this now even a tweet can can send you behind bars uh now a cartoon on a facebook page uh can send you behind bars the country has built this image of the 82% hindu majority as a victim in their own country which is not tolerant to anything that goes against their whims and that becomes uh that becomes a criminal act so what i keep speaking right now is to say is 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 criminal is criminal for the indian government i have the privilege of being a global opinions writer with the washington post perhaps that could that that's something that could save me but the conversation that we are having right now if i would write this on twitter or if, this is this is exactly this could be a, a criminal offense of many in india right now indian minorities are living in fear just i mean a lot of my friends have stopped writing anything on their facebook page for fear of being arrested you don't know what offends the government anymore so what's the outlet for folks that do want to express dissent that do want to hold institutions uh, to task that do want to speak on these topics what is the platform what is the outlet that exists today and in, in the regime and in, in india in india with the regime that's currently in place unfortunately there is no outlet which is why a lot of my well meaning friends are leaving the country is saying you know we are sending our kids abroad or we are leaving the country again that's the position of privilege how many in india would be would, would you know would afford sending their kids abroad so that they can just speak their mind we are celebrating rabindranath tagore we are celebrating freedom fight, fighters on a day which also happens to be the independence day of india we didn't plan this for all those who are watching this we didn't plan <laughs> this to happen on independence day it just happened to be independence day uh i think we have never been more caged than we are today india has never been i mean it's not a free country today and those who are looking for outlets well you have to be privileged enough 
to speak up or speak out i don't think there is there is an outlet for anybody which is why when uh, you know there was so much repressed anger amongst india's youth which is why we saw the shaheen bagh movement in india in december january which is why we saw the anti ca protest in a city like bombay i mean i've lived in bombay all my life i've never seen more than 100 people gather for a for a protest you saw you saw thousands of people you know getting uh, you know coming together to protest against what did not directly affect them but but there was a there was a there was a there was a tipping point i think that was a tipping point for indians of democracy uh, some of my friends who are affiliated even with who also worked for the bjp but they came out in um, you know protesting against the ca because they felt something was you know modi had crossed that line which should not have been crossed so these protests whether it is shaheen bagh whether it is the anti ca protests which are happening across the country the protests of jamia jnu i saw people who had nothing to do with activism nothing to do with these student movements they were joining and you know standing there with a the candle they felt cathartic doing that it felt cathartic because all you were doing is sitting at home watching republic watching times now watching them expose their bigotry day in day out and just be mute spectators and the pandemic has come in handy for modi and amit shah like all fascist regimes across the world like all authoritarian regimes across the world to to unleash uh, their majoritarian agenda by silencing dissent uh by arresting almost every person who organized a protest during the anti ca movement some of the finest minds in india some of our finest student leaders whether it's from jamia jnu uh tata institute of social sciences they're all being arrested every day one by one student activists who organized the shaheen bagh protest are behind bars they are being you know they are being beaten up and they so this is a signal to them the government saw the government saw dissent being normalized in india during the anti ca protest they used the pandemic to stifle those voices to nip it in the bud so i do hope i do hope that when things get better uh people of this country and people abroad all over the world well meaning people can rise up again because fascism cannot continue fascism cannot continue forever historically we have witnessed that fascism has to be defeated by well meaning people they do not they do not have to be people in political systems they do not have to be politicians they have they don't have to be leaders they just have to be well meaning people who understand empathize with each other and understand the language of injustice we need to all come together which is why right now we are talking to each other in the midst of this pandemic which is why we are doing this webinar we are doing the zoom call because we realize it's important for us to speak more than ever before on this it, so it was the demonstration against cea was that type of dissent um was that a flash in the pan or does that come back in a post covid uh, situation i it will it will become a flash in the pan moment if if the government which has already arrested some of the finest minds if that has managed to intimidate india's activists and india's students and india's youth and it has intimidated them then it will end up being a flash in the pan moment for india but if our anger if our outrage was outrage was legit if it came from a good space then i think post covid uh all of us will uh, you know reconnect with each other all of us need to remind each other of the fight that we were fighting you know if you look at the arrest that the government is making and i was in delhi about a month ago to to 
to basically piece together how you know the dairy carnage took place and the government has systematically arrested everybody who had a voice during the anti ca protest anybody who had a semblance of being a leader there were young a 20 year old student from aligarh muslim university and 19 year old from jnu sapura zargar who was pregnant you know the anybody who could speak who could galvanize a crowd has has been put behind bars to in, a, in an attempt to signal others that this is what we do to people who speak up so if you speak up again tomorrow you will meet the same fate but i think what the government has done is giving us given us young leaders because out of fascism out of dictatorial regimes like this we get young leaders our young leaders are not those who see we see on television our young leaders are are, are young politicians and the future of india are those who are behind bars at the moment who are willing to risk everything to sustain india's democratic institutions to sustain india's democratic interest and these are the people i have great faith in this is where my optimism stems from i see young minds i see young i see young student activists i see middle class indians fighting for something they believe in speaking up despite the cost of speaking up and it's a very small it's a very small number but history we have seen in history there's always a small number of people who have led a revolution who have brought about a revolution and i have faith in that small number of people i think that will if we stand together if we stand by each other if we have each other's back if we stand solidarity there will be a day when the fascists um uh, will be thrown out from our country and from everywhere all the same spaces that the world has seen yeah i'm curious on your thoughts on hey, when we when we look at india today there's two states that have a majority non-hindu population one is kashmir which is now in total lockdown uh and still silenced again shockingly in, in a democratic country and the other yeah. is punjab uh with yeah. the, the sick population and we have seen um we have seen the akaltakht and the the temporal seat of sikh authority speak out yeah. against the rss we've seen it speak out yeah. against the apa we've seen it speak out against caa we've seen it speak out against what's happening in kashmir I I'm curious as to your thoughts as a a Muslim woman outside of Punjab looking towards the state or six and what what do you think are our places in this conversation and and pushing dissent or pushing again shining a light on the regime Um I remember doing a series of lectures in Punjab University in in you know in Jalandhar in Ludhiana and in Amritsar and various other places in Punjab and I can tell you that the maximum number of participants I have had in any debate or lecture have been in Punjab there is a resilience that Punjabis are showing towards this fascism uh even if it's a congress regime I think the leaders of the congress borrow their borrow their nationalism from the hindu right wing scheme of things uh the leadership in punjab right now are are have been co-opted by the regime and by hindu nationalists but there is a great sense of resilience on college campuses uh uh you know people uh in universities people activists who are bringing together punjabi and sikh activists specifically uh you know who uh who have organized so many even so many for gujarat files i remember when my book was translated into into punjabi and i had an event i think somewhere in chandigarh 
and I just looked at the audience. It was massive. And I was wondering why would they do that? I mean, what has this fight got to do with them? This is about Gujarat. This is about a Muslim girl. This is about her fight. This is about her family and her, uh, you know, her, uh, her understanding of fascism. Why are these Punjabi youth, you know, all consolidating and speaking? And then I realized that there was a frustration. There was the same frustration that they are seeing among the Muslim and Dalit youth in the country. Just because these are not people in power does not mean they do not exist. And I was extremely, I think it was very liberating to see these Punjabi youth everywhere, a Sikh youth everywhere, you know, after every, after every book reading of mine, they would say, why Guruji the Khalsa, why Guruji the Fatah? And it felt like a personal victory for me. It felt like, you know, we are in this cause because we believe in the idea of justice. So there are spaces like that. Even if the regime is, um, even if the, I think the regime in Punjab is as complicit as, say, any BJP regime. You know, what's happening in, in uh, when I was in Kashmir, there was this pocket uh, where I went to cover uh, this, this uh, you know, there was this house from which three youngsters were picked up. And this is also the neighborhood that had maximum Sikh families. So the Kashmiri Muslim families and the Sikh families coexisted. And when the lockdown happened, I saw that, you know, it's injustice identifies injustice, understands injustice, like no, nothing else. They empathize with each other. Kashmir, the government is scared of Kashmir and the government is scared of the state of Punjab because these are youth which do not allow themselves to be defined by the nationalism identified by this country as true nationalism. These are, these are people who have understood what liberty means, what equality means. And a government and a regime that is dictatorial does not like a population that is well aware of its rights and that is well aware of the fight against injustice. So that's a similarity I see between Punjab and Kashmir. These are two states with a, you know, with a, with a, with a, a majority of Sikh and Muslims, which is why you see the attack on them using draconian terror charges, because that's the only way you stifle their voice. That's the only way you silence them. The supremacy that, you know, and which means the government is scared of these states. You know, you accuse them. And what is the common case that you build up against Kashmiris and Punjabi? That of terrorism. Uh, a, a person who speaks for his or her rights is well aware of his or her rights immediately becomes a person who is a threat to the state. How do you define sedition in the present day India? Sedition in present day India is an individual who is well aware of his rights and who's well, who, who wants to seek recourse and who wants to get justice and who wants to, see, who wants to get equal rights for himself or herself. That's, that's sedition in present day India. And I, and I won't be surprised at the maximum number of cases against sedition are in Punjab and Kashmir. Because the maximum number of seditious youth happen to be in these two states. <laughs> I think it's an honor that uh, the, the youth of both states are, will hold very high. Um, Absolutely. I know you're fighting a bug. So let me know if you want to kind of wind this down. Uh, we still have I a bit of time. I could take a few questions. I okay. could take a few questions. I, I've been incorporating questions as they come in and, and what I've been sharing with you. Uh, right. I, I there's one theme that's been kind of asked here is, well, there's two questions. So I'll start with this just because we're still on the topic of Punjab and, and Kashmir. Yeah. Uh, I remember the, the recent state elections in Punjab. There was um, 
there was considerable amount of hype around the Ahmad Ali party and considerable amount yeah. of conversation was up as a third front, very much because of the frustration with Congress, uh, with the BJP, and at the time also with the Akali party. Um, yeah. And that the op was maybe a solution here as like renewal or to bring in a change uh, within the democratic society or, or within the regimes of, of India. I think that has maybe faltered a little bit over time yeah. uh, in, in Punjab and elsewhere probably. So my question to you is, do you see, uh, do you see a solution here in kind of changing Indian society or changing the democracy or changing the state and how it treats its minorities through political means? Like, is it with a third front? Is it with a new political party? Or is this the system so corrupt that it just, it just won't happen? I, you know, I would have allowed pessimism to cloud my, uh, cloud my statement here because it is a, there, is a, there is an atmosphere of pessimism because what you saw in the Ahmadni party was, was a hope away from, you know, the Congress and the BJP, which have mirrored each other over decades. And you, and you thought that the Awadmi party really stood for, uh, you know, a fresh era of politics that has not been seen in the past, whose ideology is uh, clean, uh, which is anti-corruption. But over the years, I think the biggest disappointment has been the Awadmi party for its refusal to speak up against the injustices being done by the fascist regime. Whether it was the Delhi carnage, whether it was what happened in Kashmir, uh, this newfound nationalism of the Ahmadmi Party, I think it's no different from the politics of the Congress and uh, and the BJP, which is why you know it's kind of uh, it kind of brings up the question: is who do we turn to? And for and for me, the answer is at this moment of time, there are student leaders uh, across across. Uh, across the country who are affiliated with various student movements. There are political uh, outfits. Um, I'm not sure what third front will be because I don't think any government in India, uh, if it's a third front government, you know, whether if it's a Maya, this government has a way of kind of stifling any third front formation by, you know, whether it's a Trinamool Congress or an, a DMK-led government or a or any because it has multiple cases and multiple files of these people, and it can always bring them up. I think my hope lies in um, in these. I think it's, it's it's going to be it's going to be a long time before this this actually materializes. But these student leaders who we are seeing right now, who are who are not self-centered, who are not egoistical, they they are they are in jails in thousands. But once they're out, I see. There isn't any cohesive force right now to bring them together, but as in the in the next few years, I think this fascism that has been unleashed on us will throw up leaders who we can look up to. At this point of time, where we stand, I don't see anyone. I, I have to be honest. I don't see anyone. There is, you know, there are there are certain student activists who I see hope in, and I I hope I hope for the for the good for you know, for a democratic India, for a secular India, that these young leaders come together from Punjab, from Kashmir, from Maharashtra, from Kerala. You saw what's happening. I mean, Kerala is a good example. You see what's happening in Kerala. Uh, you know, they have seen landslides in the past one week. They have seen an air crash. It's the only state which has managed to crush the pandemic. And one of the big reasons is, uh, is the state is still one of the more secular states in the country, which gives the democratic and civil rights to its citizens. Uh, so that for me is, 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 um, 
you know it's it's there's a ray of optimism but but i would still i would still believe in the youth of this country and i hope that in in the in the, in the next few years they come together to foment something uh, which will bring about a real change i don't have at this point in time where things stand i don't have hope in the congress or the bjp or the aam aadmi party to actually to actually let uh, let india continue to be a democracy as we as we as we vision it I, I, this may be the last question, uh, but again, bearing on how you feel, uh, the yeah. the Dalits of of India um, are have been increasingly fighting the system, uh, have increasingly fighting a regime that has systematically discriminated against them, uh, have held them down, have uh, taken away their their opportunities to to grow. Yeah. What what's the Dalit struggle in India right now, and how does that play into dissent, and how does that play into these conversations that we're having today? Because they're cracked down harder on than anyone else, almost. Absolutely, Dalits have seen what's happening to Muslims and Sikhs right now more than anybody else, and much much before this really kind of mainstreamed itself. Um, I remember as a young journalist when I you know if uh, when I went to Kerlanji, which is this Dalit pocket in Maharashtra, uh, a Dalit girl was raped, and her you know and her and she was her body was chopped and she was thrown near the river for speaking up against uh, against a brahmin um, in 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 her village and dalits in india have seen decades of oppression uh, at this point of time and if you see across um, the series of communal riots that have took place in india there the uh, the bjp government and the Uh, and the congress regime have always used dalits as the foot soldiers to use and throw to give them as you know for instance when i was doing gujarat files and i was undercover and i was interviewing these officers who took who basically did the dirty work of killing uh, minority students and they were all dalits and there was a pattern because the brahmins do not like to do the dirty work themselves and because dalits have seen decades of oppression they allow they make them do this so that they can give them a position of power which otherwise eludes them so the dalits have been systematically misused by the regime uh, to give them their lost dignity at the cost of making uh, them do these dirty things during especially what the uh, you know what they make them do during the carnage the officers uh, in, in in whether it was the gujarat riots or the mumbai riots who were made to do the dirty job for the brahmanical uh, you know um, high level officers were dalits but i think muslims and sikhs need to understand the the fight for justice from the dalits because dalits have used their voice their poetry their literature their art to speak up this you know there are so many dalit revolutionary poets from maharashtra from punjab who have used their literature to express themselves and that is something we need to learn from dalits muslims and christians and sikhs in india need to come together with the dalits to form something to come together because we have all seen decades of oppression what's happened you know it's like there was a twitter hashtag the other day eat with a dalit it felt it felt so humiliating what does that even mean what does that even mean to eat with a dalit you're already putting yourself in a position of privilege when you're saying eat with a dalit or be friends with a dalit you know that it's the our the fact that we are so prejudiced and it's so entrenched the our you know this caste system is so entrenched in india it's like they unconsciously do something 
and then they realize that oh my god we're speaking from a position of privilege the films that are made in india on dalit rights unfortunately are made by the upper class it's always the upper class that speaks that is speaking for dalits because they always say, let us speak for you you don't speak we will speak for you it's like the muslims the muslims in india speak up for themselves they're told hey we are speaking for you the why are you speaking for yourself nobody likes a dalit speaking for herself nobody likes a dalit who is well aware of her rights because that dalit then becomes the enemy of the state which is what happened in the congress regime uapa was specifically used against dalit activist by saying that they were you know they were uh, the the kabir the kabir sangeet academy was was formed uh, the kala academy was formed by dalits the government's first target was the dalits because it, they became a threat to the state so i think muslims sikhs and christians should understand the struggle from dalits because nobody knows the fight better than them in i guess in that same light uh, if i can ask you one more question if you can sure. give me uh, enough no, indulgence to do. ask you one more question uh please do. This, this is invigorating this is this is a great conversation i think your insights are phenomenal in in america and in canada and the west in general we've been seeing an increasing conversation around black lives matter uh especially yeah. after uh, george floyd's death and what that triggered in protests across the country and and there's been lots of groundwork decades and decades and decades yeah. centuries of groundwork that's been done before this what's the moment in india where you'll see something similar where you'll see uh, a mass uh, rising or a mass movement to question and call out whereas in the west it's white supremacy uh in india it probably brahmanical supremacy or hindu supremacy uh really and that's systemically working against dalits working against minorities uh, where when do you see that happening in india what do you think will be the catalyst well there have been many moments in india when when there could be uh, that could have acted as a catalyst and you know you could have seen dalit lives matter or muslim lives matter or sikh lives matter on social media but unfortunately the problem with india is that our public voices are ashamed of speaking uh, for our own individual for our own domestic cause while they wear this black lives matter as some kind of fashion accessory so it's kind of fashionable to speak about black lives matter and put yourself put like some indian celebrities did they painted themselves black and said black lives matter which of course is so nonsensical uh, to begin with uh, but you know the same celebrities um turns since priyanka chopra priyanka chopra does uh, along with her husband puts out a statement i know i this is going to get me a lot of troll attack she puts out a statement saying black lives matter just 8 years ago priyanka chopra did a film called fashion in which she wakes up one morning sleeping right next to a black man is outraged and goes suicidal and and slips into depression uh over the years this has been normalized you know this this has kind of in a way what again look at Ind- indian culture in hindi films the main characters of our films always had this brahmanical surname they were roys and kapoors and malhotras you never had any lower caste surname in any of those uh, big blockbusters till recently muslim characters were either supporting characters who would wear those scarves and coal in their eyes or either be the villains uh for a moment for a for a moment like black lives matter in india we need to first begin with understanding our privilege the majority privilege in india uh there was there i mean last week when a muslim man on the eve of bakrid was was lynched on the streets for allegedly carrying beef uh and they beat him in public they recorded the video and we have seen a spate of lynching since 2014 indian celebrities will not speak up 
they they speak up because they believe that it's easier to take a selfie with the prime minister than speaking up for a minority who's lynched in their country which is why we do not have a black lives matter movement in india because our public voices are ashamed of speaking and they're complicit in aiding and abetting a regime that cons- that consistently has been demeaning and marginalizing its minorities for some for something like that to happen in india we need our public voices to be brave enough to put a hashtag out there forget a hashtag just say solidarity when deepika padukone went to jnu which was stand in in the press conference which student solidarity with the jnu students it was it was a huge moment because she was a public figure who was you know who was who enjoyed a great deal of adulation we need heroes in india and these heroes unfortunately in our in our in our you know in our whether in our films or whether or in our in in our sports uh they have the same status as religion in india bollywood and cricket but have we seen a single celebrity from bollywood or one of our sports icons speak up against what's happening against the fascism they won't they would rather take a selfie with the prime minister and speak up against what's happening against injustices so it's going to take a long long time for something like this to happen in india we will continue seeing the hypocrisy over black lives matter that our celebrities will talk about racism uh, in america you know i think what's happening when america is no uh, what's happening in india is no different from what's what happened to the blacks in america and you know a lot of, a lot of time i get uh, you know i get attacked for saying this but uh, and of course there is history of uh, you know racism in america but what's happening in india is no different look at the way this apartheid in india right now against muslims i went to buy an apartment in bandra which is one of the most cosmopolitan societies in bombay 3 weeks ago and you know i i i've been looking to get a space for myself and as it was the guy was from you know studied at harvard and you know i love the house and uh, i said you know would you be you know i just want to tell you that i'm muslim he said oh and and the conversation ended just there so it's going to be and i can't speak tomorrow if i even speak about it on twitter there's nobody who's going to stand in support of me saying hey muslim lives matter it's going to be a long time long long time before indians get the guts to stand up for fellow indians uh, who are in a less privileged position i think we have a great we have a lot to learn from america and other countries and we have a long way to go before we get in that space yeah just on that same train of thought like that you brought up the pidanka chopra example uh she yeah. also tweeted out uh, honoring and supporting kpsl as the super cop absolutely absolutely uh, and there was a frustration in the sikh community and that's not the first time or the last time that's going to happen but there was a frustration in the yeah, sikh community that does no one in india recognize what our people went through like does no yeah, one recognize yeah. the disappearances does no one recognize the sacrifice of someone like uh, shaheed uh, jasant singh kalra does does no absolutely. one recognize uh, the young men that were being picked up and emptied out of uh, our villages uh, for no cause and there was this grand um this grand feeling of just there's no justice for six in india and i it kind of led us up to a lot of other conversations around allyship like who's standing up for us you know six always stand up for others who's standing up for us and i think that uh, feeling also uh, is felt in other smaller communities right like our other minority communities uh, like the dalit community says it all the time as well rightfully so like no who's standing up for us uh where do you see allyship and where do you see uh folks standing up for one another and how does that actually happen uh, in india moving forward like i said in the beginning i think 
we have only each other to stand by each other i mean if a sikh if a sikh man disappears in punjab why should the muslim community not put up a twitter trend trend saying sikh lives matter you know why shouldn't dalits and why shouldn't intellectuals in india start a twitter hashtag saying sikh lives matter what stops them from saying it i think if we were to stand up and speak up for each other i think it would lead to a new beginning it would not be it would not be something that would conclude in justice but it could be a new beginning nobody is going to speak for us nobody will you know we don't expect our celebrities we don't expect our icons we don't expect our public figures to speak for us but i guess it's it's those it's you know people like us common citizens who understand injustice who understand that a man who comes from canada to punjab for a wedding ceremony suddenly disappears and nobody's talking about it in the last 3 years they have to speak up for these people i remember when when i spoke about um, i remember when i came back from canada and i wrote a facebook post about about sikh youth who have disappeared from punjab and one muslim man just wrote uh, in a comment but you know what that's a different issue altogether and is a thing that's a thing right we are so indifferent to each other we think that is not our issue that's their issue we should we should not speak to them i think it's now time for us to understand that it's not their issue it's our issue it's a collective problem it's a collective problem of injustice so muslims sikhs dalits well meaning hindus and we cannot there are i keep adding this that there are well meaning hindus who have stood up in their you know in our in our, in, in our struggle for justice whether it is a 84 genocide whether it is a 92 uh, you know carnage whether it is 2002 some of the most well meaning activists have been from the hindu community so it's not that you know that we have to kind of find spaces of solidarity find well meaning people from across spectrum and stop this i think this there is this we have our own biases we have to start with our own biases that like, why should a sikh be a part of this discussion that i am having like if rana you was having a conversation on something why should she speak on sikhs or if or if hartosh singh bal is speaking on is you know is speaking on disappearances why should he speak about something that's happening in kashmir we have to understand that we are all in this together and we have to fight this battle together it's not your or mine fight it's our fight and the day we understand i think that would be the first biggest challenge of a fascist regime to counter this trend and you know a fascist regime is always always authoritarian regime is always scared of too many victims coming together and fighting in the struggle for justice we are in this together and i hope you understand that it's not about the disappeared youth in kashmir or it's not about disappeared disappeared youth in punjab the the families and their struggle is the same the struggle of their families to get justice is the same so if you can leave one parting thought uh to people that are tuned in or people that are going to be listening to this afterwards and we will be releasing this and there's been questions we will be releasing the recording and we'll be putting together a podcast as well with this um if there's one parting thought you can give to everyone uh when we talk about criminalizing dissent in india when we talk about the importance of dissent in a democracy what would it be i think all of us who are watching all everybody who is watching this everybody around the world everybody who has social media and people who are witnessing this fascism and every day and they're just frustrated and who believe that there's no recourse there's no there's no outlet to lend uh, to let out their frustration have to understand that we all have something we have the power of social media we have the power of blogging we have the power of tweeting um uh, 
six years ago, what is spoken today was not spoken of. At least today we are protesting. Something like the anti-CA protest happened because well-meaning people were brave enough to put out a tweet and ask everybody to come in solidarity. This is the time for people. This is the time to rise above religion, caste, culture. This is the time to rise up for humanity because never before in the history of mankind has humanity been in a, in a more desperate need uh, to save itself. Uh, like I said, they have come for me today, they will come for you tomorrow. Don't be in this misconception or this, 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 this belief that because you are a part of the majority that you will not suffer. Um, you know, I, people always tell me, you know, thank you for being, you know, thank you for doing this. And you are so brave and, you know, you're so fearless. I, I look at them and say, listen, don't call me brave and don't call me fearless. You're doing this because you want to place a battle on my shoulder. Don't shoot from my shoulder. By calling me brave, you're kind of outsourcing your battle to me. Don't outsource your battle to me. We have to fight this battle. We have to come out of the space of complacency. That, you know, why should I do this? I'm comfortable outraging in my living room, watching television and abusing the news anchor. It's very simple to sit in your living room and outrage. It takes just one step to register your dissent, whether it's in your social media, whether it is countering your family WhatsApp group, whether it is coming and if you can't fight, Show solidarity with the people who are fighting the good fight for you. The people who are fighting the good fight, our activists, our journalists, need your support than never before. Like, re I mean, I, I can never, I can never, I think, stress more on the need for our solidarity like it is needed today. And I can, I keep going to the example of our relief work. When I started this, there were like, there was a huge, I had to feed so many people. And my friends said, listen, how will you, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing for you to start a keto campaign and thinking that you can do a, make a great deal of difference. That's not going to happen. I started a keto campaign and so far we have about 3,000 supporters and we have collected 1.5 crores. We have helped 40,000 families. We have sent 6,000 migrants home. We have done more than perhaps a state can do. That's the power of one individual putting out one rupee to help. So that's, that's a good example. If you think something is bothering you, if you think injustice is bothering you, then start speaking up for those who are speaking for you. Start speaking up against injustice. Take that one step. Your first step today will embolden the generations who are yet to come to speak up and not suffer in silence. I think that's as good as any moment to, to call it a webinar. Arana, thank you so much. That was... Um... That was uh, quite something, and I, and I think a lot to think about, a lot to chew on, and a lot to uh, action on as well. Uh, we thank you so I much. We think, thank yes. everybody who was. I think I, I think everybody who has participated here has made has taken the first step. Has taken the first step in in in, in being a dissenting voice by just by just logging into this and listening to this. So you have made that first step. I think it's time for all of us to stand together. And thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for taking time out to do this. Thank you so much uh, while you're battling a bug. Uh, we know that's not easy. So thank you again so much. Uh, My pleasure. We, yeah, and guys, we'll one more reminder, please yes. consider, I think this is for the people of this country, please consider you know, donating to our relief drive. It's, it's, it's a very important cause that we are fighting. It's a lonely battle. So it will be a great help for us. If you can donate to the Keto uh, campaign whose link has been given to you, you can go on my Twitter page, it's a pinned tweet. So thank you so much. On behalf of so everybody. Much.
Yeah, we'll share the link again in the chat. But Ronald, thank you. And hopefully next time it's in person after COVID. Absolutely. I look forward to come to Canada very, very, very soon. Thank you so much. And uh, take care to everyone that tuned in. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Bye. 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 B